also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Hello, 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 and this is once again an episode of The Bottleman with Dan and Riley. That's right. Uh, it is, as ever, your host, Dan and Riley. Hello. Uh, Dan, how's it going? Uh, <laughs> my, uh, you know, I really hope that my trials and tribulations are, are about to come to an end and that I will uh, ascend the plateau of normalcy uh, where I can just live a normal person's life uh, in a normal person's apartment uh, and not have to deal with uh, uh, insane landlords. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, Dev and I have moved out of our uh, previous uh, sort of bunker-like existence, um, mm-hmm. and into a new place, but but uh, we are still dealing with the tyranny of our awful landlord. So, um, prayers up, everybody. Uh, hopefully, we uh, emerge right. victorious. <laughs> I don't want to say, you know, I can't, I I can't say too much. That's the thing. I, you know, I can't. I don't. I I wouldn't want to say anything actionable about landlords or specifically my landlord. On a on a public podcast, so I'm not. I'm just not going to. You know, it's just not the kind uh, of guy yeah, I am. That's right. From uh, alternative accommodations, heart uh, they strike at thee. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> which is no. It's uh, so. Let's all. Like, by the time you're listening to this, uh, Dan will uh, and Dev will be uh, comfortably ensconced in a, a new a new place. Uh, they'll be sleeping in their big bed. Uh, and getting uh, their guest room ready for me to come stay in it in August, and this will all be well behind us, correct? Presumably, that is correct. But before then, I'll be going on tour with Wolf Parade, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> maybe like maybe you'll come back and you'll find out that your old landlords have bought this new place. Oh my god, dude! No, um, please like, do not. Uh, let's not bring that into existence. <laughs> 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 yeah, like hey, did you miss us? We're back. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I, I hope you like uh, water because the water in your sink isn't working, but we have placed a leak in the roof for you. Uh, so you can enjoy that. Uh, no, no, it is. It is. It is. Bottleman uh, is the, the podcast where we talk about uh, uh, Canada and other related things uh, that hove into our field of view. Uh, and uh, in this case, uh, this is uh, the trials and tribulations of uh, uh, living in uh, an apartment, uh, which is of course extremely difficult because we have set up our society such that the main thing that most people who own most of the apartments are incentivized to do is, uh, nothing is to never uh, maintain them. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, I mean, uh, again, uh, another, another sort of, uh, thing where I, I like to think about, um, uh, handling the difficulties with real estate as the, barometer for whether uh, any Canadian political party uh, is uh, serious about dealing with any of the, uh, uh, you might say, um, uh, uh, issues that threaten the ability of the society in which we live to continue uh, taking over. Uh, And this is a a worked example of something that nobody uh, has any plan to stop or even really any uh, interest in stopping, but in fact are going to sort of weigh that ineffectually as uh, it begins to, let's say, affect more people more acutely. Yes. Uh, Excited for for this to become even more alienated and depersonalized uh, as your landlord becomes uh, a BlackRock, which is going to be buying up all the single family homes by default soon enough. Well, I mean, Although, I, I, you know, you're painting a picture of a bleak future, but have you considered, uh, have you considered the humble beam, you know, uh, made from reclaimed wood? Like, have you, have you considered the, uh, the, the stroke of the logger upon the beam, you know, to, to tease out the form within and, and a return to tradition in the form of, uh, the, of wood, which is, Kind of what uh, Pierre Polivier was uh, was talking about for four and a half minutes of just incomprehensible babbling yesterday. That's one of the best <laughs> things I've ever seen a politician do is just, you know, that he was like, he looked at the words reclaimed wood and was like, reclaimed wood, wood, 
reclaim, return, return to tradition. Like, and then made a four minute video about it. <laughs> Fucking fantastic. Um, I, now, you see, this is just a, a product of your YouTube algorithm, which we last last episode says was ruined by our episode about Pierre Poly- Polyev's YouTube yeah. channel. But it appears that it has been improved, as a matter of fact, because you got to hear. So because I, I have not seen this video. Can you what can you tell me what conclusions uh, the putative future conservative leader of Canada um, drew from just sort of blindly free associating about reclaimed wood it's it's honestly hard to say i think what he i think the point he's trying to get at is that um is that uh we used to make things uh that sometimes um sort of naturally occurring forms that don't necessarily fit together in the way that uh something that was you know mass manufactured sometimes those things are better you know that the that the flaws within them are actually um, are actually beauty, and also he just really loves running his hands over uh, <laughs> reclaimed wood. <laughs> so he loves to uh, caress we, it. Do, he loves to stroke it. Uh, he loves to think about uh, the uh, mighty axe blows of the loggers that felled the tree that formed the beam in his fucking whatever. He's in some kind of like barn cottage. I, I don't know. I have no idea. Every, every Canadian to have barn cottage. No, I just, it's interesting that we appear to be in some kind of Pierre Polyev ecstasy era uh, <laughs> where he just likes to stroke stuff like and um, feel good about himself. Uh, which, hey, you know what? Fine, whatever. It, at least it's something different. Yeah, it's important, you know, watching this, you get, you get the same feeling you get watching the video drum signal. Like, do not be afraid to let your body die. Uh, do not be afraid to let all sort of rational sense like leak from your ears as as you watch this mm-hmm. campus conservative um, uh, go on and on about about boards that he likes. <laughs> favorite, favorite two by four yeah. is by me, Pierre Polyam. But someone did someone did bring up the fact I will I will say someone did bring up the fact that um, this is actually kind of heretical when it comes to like uh, wood based political theory because the log lady of twin peaks right you know she's kind of got the right idea in 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 a logocracy uh like like a sort of esoteric logocracy what you have is you have the wood speaking through the human as a conduit you are the conduit for the knowledge of the log whereas polyver's sort of like autocratic mechanized uh wood-based political theory is is that humans must tease the meaning out of the log, which is false. That's, that's revisionism. Like you let the log speak through you. Um, you might not be able to understand the message of the log, but it's not up to you to uh, shape the beam as it were. And, and I think if he'd ever actually done some kind of a real job, as opposed to like, you know, being a campus conservative at the age of 46, uh, then uh, maybe he would have understood the relationship between uh, man and log oh does God, not flow dude. in the direction that he believes. <laughs> You're totally right. He so he's he is basically he's never had a real job, and he's the act of working with his hands for the first time in his life is giving him like a DMT like experience. Um, I mean, I'm just, I, look, I think what we need to do is we need to do like a program of cultural exchange between Canada and Australia, where uh, Pierre Polyev's YouTube channel is going to go and visit the primitive technology guy. Um, and then he's just going to live in the woods and then like build a mud hut. Uh, and, and, and then somehow he's going, he, and then he is going to finally, co- he's going to finally articulate a version of national conservatism that doesn't, isn't just like appealing to columnists, yes. you know? <laughs> He is going to he is going to go to Australia. He's going to build like a draft furnace out of mud, and then he's going to use that to make like roof tiles for a thatched uh, like a like a, a waddle and daub hut uh, with a super ripped Australian guy. And he will finally allow the log, uh, the stick, and the clay uh, to speak through him. And and through that, he will finally articulate. Um, what uh, you know, like like Vox and uh, Atlantic columnists have been sort of describing as a fait accompli uh, for uh, years now, and Canada will finally originate a political tendency. Yes, yes, this is 
this is return to tradition in the sense that um, return to tradition in the sense that you will be losing several digits every winter uh, because you didn't adequately stuff mud and straw between the irregular boards that uh, comprise your uh, your log cottage. And, you know, that's just that's the blood sacrifice that we make to the log gods. That's right. Uh, and that is the log speaking through us. Uh, it didn't want us to have those fingers. We're not shaping uh, the example. log's message here. We're just a conduit. No, the, the logs do not shape only our message, but our bodies as well. Yes. All right. So I think if we can, I, I, I think we can we can move on to um, some uh, heretical uh, aspects of modernity. Uh, I've got two uh, uh, sort of technology-based things I wanted to discuss. Again, my other podcast sort of rearing its head and peeking through into, into this one. Um, there are two, two bits of sort of tech news uh, that I think are relevant. One thing that we sort of have been meaning to talk about for a couple of weeks but haven't really gotten to, and one thing that I found the other day and that caused me to drop my head into my hands in disbelief. Uh, which one do you want to start with, Dan? Uh, let's, let's, ease, let's ease me into this. Let's 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 end with the one that made you drop your head into your hands. <laughs> and and it, you you'll understand why uh, sort of when I explain the full thing. But no, let's start with the first one, uh, which is that sort of throughout June, uh, I mean, throughout the last sort of several months, the um, crypto market has been imploding. It's been the topic of no small amount of discussion on this podcast. Um, and there's one element of it we we haven't discussed, right? Which is um, which is one of the ways in which uh, it has found penetrate. It has it has been the fake thing that is that has penetrated the lives of ordinary people, right? Because as I was telling you the other day, Dan, like the best way to understand the uh, a few things uh, such as Web three decentralized finance and the market that it created was that it it, it as well it, is that the network of different lenders, liquidity providers, insurers, and stablecoins, essentially, uh, and, and also uh, sort of funds, replicated the exact role of their equivalents in the run-up to the 2008 financial crisis if you just replace real estate in Florida with Bitcoin, mm -hmm. right? The whole thing was designed to create and de-risk leverage uh, that could be used in order to purchase more Bitcoin. Now, a lot of the liquidity that was created through stablecoins was created, um, some might say, under suspicious circumstances, uh, whether that's an algorithmic stablecoin that's kind of creating value out of, the, out of anticipated future transactions, not connected to any kind of real value of use value, it's pure exchange value, um, or whether that is Tether just saying, yeah, it's all backed by US dollars in our reserves. You can't, can't look at it though, uh, but it sure is. Uh, and again, lots of prints of those stablecoins being connected to running up Bitcoin's value, right? What happened was, of course, uh, as soon as confidence is lost in this system to essentially pump the price of Florida real estate, aka Bitcoin, which again, that's what the whole financial system did 20 years ago uh, with Florida real estate, um, is that the, um, the falling value of the asset just quite meant in many cases that a lot of loans all got called in at once, and then a lot of things that existed basically purely as imaginary things on credit fell apart. And what mm -hmm. we created was largely a model of a banking system, a map of a territory that had very, very few linkages into the real world. Yes. Right? Not none, but not many. Um, now, again, this could have been much worse if it happened much later, right? Um, company, a lot of countries were already like, Again, it happened very badly for El Salvador because they just decided to invest directly in Bitcoin. Uh, it could have, but it could have been very bad. For example, if the UK had sort of done what it was sort of looking at intending to do and like bringing stable coins into the national uh, payment infrastructure, like all of that would have been very, very bad because more things would have been exposed to what is essentially a big Rube Goldberg machine to pump up the value of Bitcoin uh, by doing a shell game of smoke, a shell game of smoke and mirrors. Yes. This is my wonderful mixed metaphor there, right? However, we, we, did, we haven't talked about one of the ways in which it has reached out and touched the real world, uh, which is uh, the second largest pension fund in Canada invested hundreds of millions, which is, again, a, fortunately, a drop in the bucket in pension fund terms. But, you know, 
hundreds of millions of dollars is still not nothing, uh, into a crypto exchange, Celsius, which has sort of been in the process of slow motion collapsing, doing things such as freezing withdrawals ever since. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't, exchange, Celsius, isn't, isn't yeah. Celsius the company that like three weeks ago or a month ago, they were like, uh, heads up, everyone, uh, no transactions, nothing to worry about, just uh, can't move money around here. Yeah. Uh, it, no, look, the, ba- the money is in... Um, Money, the money's not here, okay? It's, <laughs> the money's in Bob's ape and Jeff's ape and, and Steve's crypto punk. And unfortunately, um, some of the I, money is in Jim's uh, Aussie bats. They're not worth all that much. Not a lot of the money is in there. They're basically worthless, but there is some money in there. So, But it's not here. Look, we put all the money into buying NFTs of Wolf Parade singles. It somehow <laughs> only uh, enriches like one guy in Singapore. Man, I am... And we'll see none of... None of those fun bucks. As an, as an aside, I am so, so glad that uh, Wolf Parade, the band, did not take the suggestion that we had from someone that we work with uh, who shall remain nameless to uh, get into NFTs. It was an unequivocal across yeah, I mean, the board no from everyone. And I feel I feel really proud of the band for that. You know, one of the proudest things. Um, you know that their their monthly transaction value has now dropped by another 90 percent. Um the, there's under a billion dollars uh, of NFTs were traded in total in June, which is like very a very very small amount considering like what it was at earlier. Incredible, which just essentially because the thing to I think the, the thing to remember about sort of NFTs and Web three in general, and we'll talk about um, the, the the sort of cast a, the cast pension fund going into uh, be investing in Celsius, how it worked and what happened. Um, was that these were the like at, these were the last gasp of um, of the entire crypto project was uh, trying to pull in the money of more rubes. Yeah, it was there to generate exit liquidity for people who got lots of crypto um, and were smart enough to realize that the valuation of it was in completely um, fake because it used yes you'd say oh. The market cap of Bitcoin is a quillion tillion, Ether is a million zillion, whatever, whatever. But uh, that none of that money is realizable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because it, the moment you try to start to sell any, the moment you try to sell any considerable amount of it, then uh, it will uh, completely implode. So you have all this theoretical wealth that you need to turn this useful theoretical wealth that you need to turn into boring, uh, useless uh, fiat that you can exchange for goods and services <laughs> as opposed to you know whatever you use crypto for um and so uh, uh effectively right you know it was it was just a thing to keep people in or to get new money in and that new money in was bailing old money out yeah um and during this entire time right because it was so effectively marketed uh not just by its hucksters and hustlers but also by uh experts by tech journalists by lots of people who like to say, oh, it's a young technology. It's not fully understood yet. It's gonna, here's how it's going to change the world of everything. Even from fucking um, you know, uh, 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 Gary V, you know, yeah. the fucking youth pastor who does, who's, who's sort of trying to, you know, constantly trying to hustle. Is, is he said, oh, yeah, your airline ticket could end up being worth a lot of money if you get a, um, an artist to design an NFT that will go with uh, each of it. So you could sell your trip from you know, fucking Montreal to New York for hundreds of dollars because someone wants to collect trips or whatever. Just the assumption that by creating a product and because of your sort of manifest goodness uh, or your manifest talent or whatever, that a market will just naturally emerge for it. Well, all of this thinking. I mean, I I just just as an aside, like, you know, we're talking about like, like how this got injected into the mainstream, Um, you know, uh, how this sort of market expanded from a bunch of uh, in-the-know nerds to uh, regular people. And we covered this on uh, my other podcast on Fortune Kit, but one of the big movers for this, uh, one of the big conduits for this from from that world to the public via uh, trusted celebrities was uh, Guy Osieri, who is the, you know, famously signed Alanis Morissette and the Prodigy in the 1990s. was like, legitimately probably one of the most brilliant music managers of of the last half of the 20th century and uh he 
he got in on the ground floor and invested in verticals and platforms and then used his uh, sort of stable to essentially uh, chill NFTs because he was a he was a believer like, you know, Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy Fallon, part of his roster, like, uh, you know, the collaboration between Snoop Dogg and Eminem. Um, and an interesting thing is that, like, you know, before any of these people on his roster started coming out publicly and saying, Hey, I have an ape, you know, you should have an ape too. Um, the tell is that he, he invested in like, op- he and Kutcher invested in OpenSea, So they invested in the platform and then they invested in uh, something called notable, which was supposed to be a way you could use fiat currency to buy NFTs. And then, uh, and then you've got, you know, basically bands and celebrities popping up and saying, I have an ape. Apes are cool. This is great. You should do it too. And then everything, of course, collapsed. So, although apes are still trading high, I mean, they're trading high relative to other NFTs. But, the, the, but like Riley, like you said, the like the bottom has kind of fallen out from under this. Yeah, and also, you know, your your value your value is set by by how much you can sell it for. So if you just never sell it, uh, and you never you never sort of um. You, you never set an ask to be matched by a bid, then you get to keep your paper value as long as you want. Yeah. As long as no one else does. Exactly. So, you know, your your notional floor, pl- floor price for your board ape is whatever. Try selling it. Um, and I think that's, that's the, that's sort of what I sort of, where I also come into like this idea of uh, pension funds uh, investing in, um, in, 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 in exchanges, right? So they didn't actually buy cryptocurrency. They invested in Celsius, which was an exchange. Right. Right. A place where you could take your worthless fiat and trade it for a valuable database entry. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so this is, this is, this is from the, the Globe and Mail, um, an, an article by uh, Ethan Liu, the Globe and Mail, who says, um, <clears throat> Cast de Depot at Placement du Quebec, Canada's second largest pension fund, is an investor in Celsius. I'd asked the fund about its investment just a little before the company's very bad day. On June 3rd, they told me, all our investments are subject to our rigorous analysis process. As a long-term investment investor, our investment decisions are based on long-term value creation, not on short-term fluctuations. Celsius is a fast-growing company in a nascent sector. Which, again, that means, right, that, um, that means, essentially, uh, that that $150 million Canadian uh, has, uh, has, been, has gone to uh, a, something that was able to make itself look like it was going to be uh uh let's say the i don't know fuck apple in 1983 you know um and you know it's 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 so think about it it's like, it's like they they invested in a bank and what the bank does is it allows people to stake cryptocurrency that it lends out and then it gives them yield and a lot of in a lot of cases uh, a lot of these a lot of these yield farming organizations would say you can get insane amounts of liquidity. And then what happens is, of course, a lot of the liquidity comes from people staking crypto that then gets given out. And so just so long as nobody ever tries to withdraw much, again, just like, the, just like with the, a lot of NFT prices, if you don't try to take it out, then everyone can keep living in the fantasy world of watching the number go up. Mm-hmm. But the moment you try to take it out, then maybe the first guy gets his money back, maybe the second. But at some point, you get a bank run, and then and then what will happen is what Celsius did, which is they'll say, "Sorry, no one can invest." So it's not like you put money into um, into a a Ponzi scheme. Uh, it's rather more like you invested in a company that offered, let's say, very generous rates of return. Right. Right. And and by the way, of course, that has now. Um, uh, filed for bankruptcy. It's not filed for bankruptcy yet, but it was uh, absolutely. It has been known to have hired bankruptcy lawyers. But that's not the only pension fund in Canada that has invested in crypto. That's just the one that's gone worst so far. Right. Yeah. Uh, Ontario Teachers. Um, they invested in um, Sam Bankman Fried's trading platform FTX. Right. How's that and FTX going? FTX is actually like. FTX so far is still doing very well because it had the first mover advantage, which means it was big enough that it's able to keep just swallowing up all of the other firms that now keep going bankrupt, right? So in a period of consolidation, it could actually do very well for a while. But 
again, that depends on this thing being worth something and people paying fees to FTX to trade it. If the thing isn't worth anything, then no one's going to pay fees to the broker of the thing that's not worth anything in order to buy and sell the thing that's not worth anything Mm -hmm. because there is no buying and selling of it. And so it's just like how Coinbase is down like what 80 or 90% from its high, like the most kind of reputable, largest uh, uh, sort of US based uh, exchange, um, right? And so it's, it's uh, investing in an exchange is more like investing in crypto as a concept, right? Investing in the idea that people will want to keep trading it in any direction. Yes. As opposed to handling in one. Um, one 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 direction, and so you know the, the article in the Globe and Mail suggests like Celsius was uniquely poorly managed, uh, and that uh, Cass um, was when when Cass put money in it, it was uh, they they made a bad investment, uh, whereas Ontario Teachers made a good investment because ah. FTX is still sort of holding strong. It's the classic, um, it's the classic Jeremy Irons and Dead Ringers thing where he brings out the. Uh, tray of horrific instruments and his brother is like you've gone mad and he's like no the instruments are fine it's the women's bodies that are wrong um and i mean uh and so what's happened now right is that ftx actually is like it is kind of beginning to backstop the entire sector as it begins taking over sort of less viable exchanges that didn't get as much early capital and that might have had to rely on attracting more pe- more investors retail investors in and stuff with attractive say and uh, one might again might suggest ungettable interest rates um, and so they just keep on buying it up and then a lot of pension fund money uh, and sovereign wealth fund money then flows into t- into FTX right so it's sort of the uh, it, it let's just say it's concentrating on a point <laughs> i would say right um and so, you know, more and more and more, uh, you know, it's going to, and, and, you know, we're going to see people, people's real money. Again, Cass manages $420 billion, $150 million is a drop in the bucket, but that is still some real person who is going to have less money at some point. Mm-hmm. They're going to need to cover that loss somehow, which means everyone is just a little bit worse off in no small part because uh, journalists and regulators and a lot of public officials, as well as... Uh, you know, opinion formers, other trusted people, celebrities, whoever you want to call it, all uh, through either uh, greed or uh, outright uh, mendacity or stupidity, uh, all sort of got involved in this and wanted everyone else in as well. Because the more people are involved and the more people believe in it, uh, then the number stays high so long as no one stops believing. Yeah. Uh, which is a great way to have a foundation uh, of an economy and an economic order. Uh, is that just everyone has to keep believing and putting money in all the time um, because it doesn't produce anything. Uh, it just produces value. Now, there's an, another thing I want to talk about, though. <laughs> One more thing. This is also in the Globe and Mail. and was something that I stood up from my computer when I saw. Did you, um, did you flip your desk that, over? Um, I, very nearly. Uh, which is, okay, are you familiar with these uh, companies that offer 15-minute delivery? For like groceries and stuff from you know, you know whatever the Montreal equivalent of a bodega is. The dep- you're talking about the dep the depanure where uh, yes. where you can buy uh, one of one of the only corner stores in Canada I believe where you can or types of corner stores in Canada where you can buy uh, delicious wine and or beer. Although de- dep wine yes. dep wine's pretty bad. Like you don't want to. I don't know. The older you get, the less you want to stay up all night drinking dep wine. There's a there's a price to pay at the end of that. I mean, we, we've got this something similar in, in, in Britain, which is uh, we have uh, offies, uh, they're called. Off license? Uh, that's the one. Yeah, all right. Uh, and yeah, and you, and you go in, and then uh, in my part of London, uh, a, a Turkish man calls you boss, and then uh, you can uh, buy uh, some like yellowtail Shiraz that's yes. covered in a layer of dust yes. an inch thick. Yes, yeah. this is like the Depp. Uh, the, one can. The Depp has all the yellowtail you can drink and Gato Negro too, Sangre y Toro, oh, yeah. which is uh, the blood um, of the cow, I believe, in Spanish. Yeah, we, we have uh, a lot of Echo Falls in, in, in our case. You know, you can, you can see a lot. You can, let's just say you can, you can see a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of party types going in and buying some Echo Falls rosé uh, for a sad British hang. Yeah, good times. Great. But no, so the... Um, the, uh, but you're familiar with these 
with these ultra fast grocery delivery firms that have sort of sprouted up all over Europe and the US and now that are sort of just entering Canada. Mm-hmm. So um, for those of you who don't know, uh, there are sort of there's been a profusion in the last sort of year after COVID created uh, a lot of extra demand for, um, let's say, uh, quick things, a lot of extra demand to get quick things. And then also um, temporarily created created some slack in the labor force. A little bit. Um, before, again, tightening it quite a bit. This was responded to with a massive increase in uh, the exploitation of sort of the already casualized labor that was standing around into uh, dark convenience stores, which are essentially uh, little mini warehouses dotted around urban areas uh, that are sort of used exclusively by couriers who work for organizations such as Tiggy, Gettier, Gorillas, GoPuff, or uh, other you know, silly, silly named Go organizations. GoPuff, hey. Um, yeah, GoPuff. That's one of the big ones. Um, so they, but and what's interesting about about these about these companies, right, is that uh, none of them have ever been profitable or have any path to profitability. They are not considered uh, anything close to any kind of, uh, let's say, legitimate um, some kind of some kind of like business model that will work. You know, they, right. the story of the sector has been a story of. Um, has been a story of a uh, uh, sort of uh, failure, and um, it has been a story not just uh, not just of failure, but of uh, just losing tons of money because th- because j- simply because like you cannot make enough money. No one really wants uh, a thing delivered in fifteen minutes, or at least not at the scale of investment that these places have well, um, have taken in. I mean, uh, yeah, just on just. I mean, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not an expert in like the uh, profitability of delivery services, but it seems like having to pay commercial warehousing space to keep uh, a depeneur's worth of goods in that people can't just walk by and also come in and purchase seems insane. Like that seems crazy to me. It also seems crazy to me considering, I mean, at least in Montreal, no matter where you are, you're, you're two blocks from a dep. Like, it's it's very hard to find a place in Metro Montreal where you're like you're you're hoofing it to a depeneur. Yeah, well, because that, that's what seems so strange for um for for Canada as well, right? Because you have cities, right, where either you are moments away from a depeneur or a convenience store or whatever, or you seem to have very quickly Canadian cities turn into gigantic suburbs. Yeah, in which case yeah. you you're taking your car to the metro or, you know, or the IGA or wherever you go to buy groceries and you're not or or you're getting like your treats at the gas station. And it also it's another sort of example of uh do not go and interact with anyone. Also, I I got to say like pre sorry, just pre-pandemic like even in Montreal at least, most of the independent grocery stores in this city of which there are quite a few you know, like I'm thinking like PA or like anyone who lives in Montreal <laughs> or Lipas and stuff, stuff that is, you know, grocery stores that are designed to serve a specific community that lives in this uh, city. They all have free delivery after like a certain amount of money. So they have their own delivery vans. Uh, you go, you pick your shit out. You know, this is assuming people are living in high density places and don't have cars or don't want to drive around. And it's it's great. And you're not using an app. You're just, it's a one-to-one transaction with the independent grocery store that you're shopping at. So yeah, this makes, this makes the uh, 15 minute depth delivery even, even weirder, you know? And so this is, this is what I thought was insane, which is that after the business model has manifestly been failing to, to everywhere else, uh, Canada's like, we got to get in on this. Why? Uh, so it says it, it's. Ah, uh, I mean, there needs to be a special government body that uh, is just is just like the bad idea blockers. They're like the goalie for bad American ideas. So you know, when BlackRock says, uh, "Hey, we want to open up BlackRock Canada," somebody can just be like, "No, bad idea. Sorry." <laughs> like, yeah. Sorry, you can't. No buying the Canadian houses. Yeah. 
we say right. So what we there's when we say coming to Canada, right? We say that that the Globe and Mail writes the fast grocery delivery trend first took hold in markets such as Berlin, London, Paris, and New York uh, that have collectively raised billions of dollars. Again, we don't say made raised have raised this is billions all, of dollars. This is all venture capital investment, right? This is all like yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Absolutely, but have yet to expand to Canada. And now the race is on to build such qu- quick commerce services here. Oh, my God. Dude. Nobody knows how big it will actually be, said Lauren Steinberg, Senior Vice President of Loblaw Digital. But we can't identify the size until we're playing in it. We do believe that if we wait, we'll be too late. If it happens, and we think it will, we don't want to be caught off guard. Uh, um, <sighs> challenges lie ahead. Some startups in the U.S. have gone out of business. GoPuff and Getty are recently laid off hundreds of workers. Joker closed its U.S. business to focus on Latin America. And Gorillas has slowed its U.S. expansion plan and recently closed operations in Belgium. With many of the businesses far from ever breaking even a recession or even any just less buoyant financing conditions. So basically <laughs> money being worth anything, interest rates not being zero, could negatively affect them. And shoppers already feeling the sting of high prices may be wary of markups and online services compared to what they could find in stores. Um, if you look at the U.S. as a model, uh, said Sylvain Perrier, chief executive of of Toronto-based e-commerce. Not a real name. I'm from sorry. Mercata. Sylvain Perrier? Perrier? <laughs> Sylvain Perrier? Give me a break. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a, if you look at the U.S. as a model, it's an unfortunate race to the bottom. Um, <laughs> Which is why Loblaws Digital is excited to uh, dip their toes in this uh, new dynamic world of uh, fucking non-profitable 15-minute depth delivery. Great. Love less digital. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, let's just... Because it, 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 was, it was a creature, really, of the pandemic, right? It relied on commercial real estate in the center of cities being cheap. Yep. It relied on an immediate um, dislocation of low-wage labor that it could exploit more easily. It relied on people not um, wanting to go to blocks because they're afraid of getting coronavirus, you know? Like... Yeah, that's it. It's like, yeah, exactly. And, and we've we're uh, we're over that now. We're we're all outside. <laughs> yeah, we're all it's, going. Uh, to the we're depth. all outside. We're going to the depth together. We're all licking and, the like, dusty just, just, fucking uh, 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 Italian. Uh, sorry, we're all licking the dusty Australian Shiraz bottle, you know, numb. Not not the dust. It's the it's the I know the, the wine inside would be even worse. Yeah. Um and you know, I mean the all the various sort of partnerships, again with US tech companies that Loblaws is going through, like DoorDash, um, is again just seems to be us, uh and especially our great and our good, just um just falling for whatever is presented to them. First it was, you know, Bitcoin and Alberta trying to become a crypto capital in Quebec and, and Ontario teachers just blindly investing in, in in these you know crypto organizations without and again doing their doing their research but not really examining their own priors i guess you could say um God, fuck this is an then, entirely canadian trait man like we, we were talking about this with john it's just like you you have a window to the future we're always you know a late adopter of whatever and you know with with like the f-35 for instance you've got australia which is two years ahead of us on the timeline and you've got you know defense white papers coming out saying danger danger warning giant money pit you know like a plane does not work like and 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 while that's happening we're still in the process of gearing up everybody to get excited about 88 new f-35s like Again, we need some kind of government agency, some kind of backstop that has uh, basic reading comprehension. It is like we come from a terrible future where none of these plans will work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and and so you you sort of the entire article. I mean, the, the article itself, again, that we're talking about is relatively even handed, sort of suggesting, yes, a lot of these things failed in other places or sort of have had their growth capped in other places because it's based on a stupid idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, it's based on a stupid idea that was uh, that was sort of native to a particular time, um, a particular era of low interest rates and sort of cheap real estate and um, sort of recently dislocated labor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that the sort of but that they the everyone interviewed by it just is is sort of head scratching right yeah uh, and saying for example 
Uh, Why hasn't a big player like this appeared in Canada? Or DoorDash co-founder Andy Fang said, it's a trend across the world that we haven't seen go outside of the big cities just yet because it's logistically really challenging. As though that means that that problem has a solution that involves a 15-minute delivery service. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, I, I, you're just hearing about this, like the, the, the idea, if it were to work, makes more sense in communities like the place that I grew up, which is, you know, kind of turning into a food desert, um, or at least some of the outlying sort of spurs of the community. It's, it's difficult to get food. You got to drive, right? Like you have to, you know, it would make sense for those people to have access to a service that wouldn't, it definitely wouldn't be 15 minutes, but it would be, all right, well, you know, we've killed local business. The only thing left is the big box store that's like 45 minutes up the highway. Like we, you know, maybe there's <laughs> maybe we can get food delivery out to the outlying communities. Like that's bleak, but at least it makes more sense than like food delivery from the place that's a, like a ghost depreneur four blocks away from you. Or, or maybe it's maybe it's eight blocks away from you. Maybe it's fucking 45 minutes away from you, you know? Like, I just doesn't, nothing makes sense. Like, none of this makes sense. All you know is that you, you hit the button and then you get some ridiculously marked up convenience store food. Yes, and you don't have to leave your um, house. Like, that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You get a bag of Doritos exactly. for $8. <laughs> Thank goodness I didn't have to leave my house. I have no idea where it came from. <laughs> I've never seen before the person that gives it to me. It just, it might as well be just, as far as I'm concerned, everything that goes into it is just obscured by this app. And, uh, and, and as far as I know, I've just sort of summoned food. Yeah. Um, but it, it is a, a, I'd say a, a strange delusion, right? That uh, this could work anywhere. It could even be remotely necessary. It's also a strange delusion that it could even be remotely necessary anywhere, really, considering the particulars of the of the sector. And finally, it seems like it seems to me like it's an example of just someone doing something. And rather than thinking about whether or not this is a thing that's worth doing in any sense of the word, there has just been a great rush to participate. Yeah, I mean... This is once again just solving a problem that doesn't need to be solved. Like like the existence of the depreneur solves the problem of high density urban living where like you you aren't gonna bike uh across to a different neighborhood to go get a chicken or some eggs. You know, you can go to the depreneur and get chicken slices and some shittier eggs. <laughs> like like we fixed it, we solved it. There's you can buy food pretty much anywhere. <laughs> With low effort, uh, so it's, it, it is to it is to me just a strange thing seeing Canada once again look into the future of this thing failing everywhere else, just saying, "But maybe here, maybe we'll do it right somehow." Yeah, why does that keep happening here? <laughs> what is it about this country that? <laughs> Makes us look at like, I don't know, like the app, the, the app version of like, uh, like the American Yugo and just be like, this is good, actually. Like, we need to get in on this immediately. All right. Uh, shall we, shall we wrap up by talking about a little more, um, sort of, uh, uh, NDP, uh, Ukraine stuff? Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, our, our old friend McPherson is back in the news. NDP defense the woman critic. Who saw- <laughs> NDP defense critic and a, a woman who saw a play once. Yes. And that, that has uh, once again been just great. And I, I think before, before going into this as well, um, I personally am not sort of at all going into this with an attitude of, say, uh, of, of both sides-ism. Um, you know, at, at no point do I, uh, I want to say like, ah, oh, that, that sort of... That means that because again, I sort of take great pains to say that I don't think any of this means that like you know the invasion is justified or everyone's as bad as one another and, and so on and so on. But rather that um, uh, I'm I am interested in if I'm going to be uh, sort of a a citizen of a society that is um, definitely supporting uh, sort of one side over another in a war. Um, I would very much like to know that. Um, we are sticking to the uh, the things that we believe uh, that we are, um, let's say, 
at least uh, matching our uh, rhetoric to uh, what it is that we do and support. Uh, I would rather we weren't involved at all, as you, as sort of I think it would come as no surprise to anyone here. Uh, but nevertheless, um, the yeah. uh, it's 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 worth talking about the uh, let's say uh, willful ignorance uh, of um, our sort of again media and politicians of um, of of anything that challenges the sort of extremely simplistic worldview which we have taken great pains uh, to challenge on this show. Yeah. And and I would add to that, like for me personally, um, you know, this as as soon as this as soon as Russia invaded Ukraine and the war started ratcheting up, I think we both, you know, on the show we both called it like this was essentially a giant green light for uh, all of the military spending that uh, all of the people that we have, you know, the various different. Factions, think tanks, uh, political groups, uh, you know, diaspora groups in this country have been begging the government to turn on this money tap for for years now, since basically since Maidan. And it is happening and it is happening in a way that is just like mind boggling. I mean, we have recently we I, I think we mentioned it on the show, but there is. Uh, a financial watchdog brought up that uh, or has kind of called out a $15 billion unexplained uh, irregularity in the military spending in the 2022 budget. Like uh, we are committing $4.9 billion in the short term to upgrading NORAD. Um, we're talking about building more ships. We are talking about Arctic security and sovereignty more than uh, you know we ever have before. And this is already just like the numbers on the board are just tens of billions of dollars. Like, it is just unfettered spending. So, and and the thing underpinning all of that spending is sort of broadly the notion of global security, like without saying it out loud that we are in, we, quote unquote, we are in a, are in a great conflict with, uh, you know, the non-rules-based international order countries, aka Russia and China, right? Like, like that, that's sort of the, that's sort of the, the, the background noise of this. But more immediately, it's it's Russia's invasion of Ukraine is really being used to justify this insane amount of spending. So I think it's obviously really important that when Parliament is discussing, you know, further action or codifying things into law, that we have like a clear eyed view of the conflict that is being used to justify all this. And if we can't have a clear eyed view of the conflict, then something is deeply wrong. Right. And, and so what, what essentially has happened is uh, Paul Robinson is uh, an academic from the University of Ottawa who was called to testify before uh, the Canadian Parliament about, um, uh, about sort of uh, war crimes and the specific legality of what's going on uh, in, in Ukraine from the perspective of uh, sort of various countries' law, uh, interpretations of the laws of war. Uh, and again, just the, the bio his biography is um, he was a British uh, Army Intelligence Corps officer for half of the 90s, a reserve officer in the Canadian forces, um, and um, now has sort of writes and publishes widely on the international press and political issues. He's not has, his background is not as a some kind of a peace activist or a, a leftist activist or whatever. No, no, no. Is a no very, Riley, I'm hearing what yeah. you're saying. I'm this guy. Is, he's a tanky, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he drove yeah. a tank. Uh, that's what a tanky is. He's a, he loves Stalin. He's a tanky. Mm -hmm. um, he says, uh, and this is this is from um, this is from a testimony on human rights violations uh, in Ukraine. This, I'm just reading out what he said to Parliament. He says, um, prosecuting human rights violations after the fact is less important than preventing them from happening in the first place. However, awful war crimes may be, they may account for a tiny fraction of the human suffering experienced in war. War in Ukraine is largely being fought in an urban setting, fighting in build-up areas, even when entirely following the laws of war is extremely destructive and tends to result in considerable loss of civilian life. We've seen this in Syria and Iraq, as well as Raqqa, Mosul, and Fallujah. Um, ahem. Beyond that, the laws of, uh, in modern conflicts, we have a catch-all phrase, dual-use targets being used to justify attacks on very broad category potential targets. Beyond that, the laws of war actually permit what is euphemistically called collateral damage. In mm -hmm. war, human rights are violated daily on an entirely legal basis. Peace, even on unfavorable terms, is generally a much better way of protecting rights than prolonging war, however just the cause. 
Despite this, in the past week, NATO has stated that it will back Ukraine if necessary. This is by this testimony was from late May. For years, the British government has stated that it will support Ukraine if it tries to retake Crimea, and the U.S. Secretary of Defense has stated that America's aim is to weaken Russia. The human cost of these options, if put into practice, would surely be enormous. Even if Ukraine manages to halt the current offensive in Donbass, it is unlikely that it will have sufficient strength to recapture all its lost territories. And even if it could recapture them, it could not do so without inflicting on cities like Donetsk and Luhansk the same sort of damage that Russians have inflicted on Mariupol. Ending the suffering would require the war to be brought to an end as rapidly as possible, but I'm concerned we may be moving in the opposite direction. Uh, again, this is uh, tanky to think this, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he blew it right there by saying that uh, Ukraine was not going to reclaim all of the territory that it had lost since 2014. That is absolutely heretical. Can't say that. Can't yeah. say that Ukraine isn't going to get Crimea back, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like this is this is not something that is unique to Paul Robinson. I I, I also enjoy uh, well enjoy. I also listen to a lot of the Blob talking to itself uh, military uh, shows. I read a lot of Blob talking to itself military papers because again, I think that's just where the unvarnished truth is. There, it's just not in. It's not published for public consumption. It's published for the, it's the blob publishing for itself, and it's available for public consumption if you want it. You, know, you just have to go look. Um, and yeah. um, and again, and again, the sort of the consensus is, yeah, this is uh, it, it, is that like Russia went into the war with um, unwinnable war aims and unrealistic expectations, and we have also have we also have those. We also have unmeetable aims and incredibly unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. Um, and uh, you know, it is deeply irresponsible to act as though these are uh, doable, even though sort of what we've done with so much sort of um, suggesting that this is uh, simple uh, and easy, uh, not just morally simple and easy, but also um, mechanically simple and easy, is suggested that you know, the, our war aims are not unrealistic. Uh, anyway, so... Mm-hmm. This was, uh, um, this was uh, 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 Robinson making another, making another testimony. Right again, sort of someone who is committed to a legal understanding of things like war crimes. He says there is clearly mistreatment of prisoners of war going on in this war. That is clear. I think it's necessary to point out that everyone is doing it. A month ago, for example, a video came to light showing Ukrainian soldiers murdering Russian POWs. Even though, as we've pointed out, a video only isn't proof per se, the BBC was able to verify this by geolocating where it happened, which was in Ukrainian-held territory. The Guardian newspaper reported that the bodies were spotted in the area by satellite, so it does seem likely that in this case, Ukrainian soldiers murdered Russian prisoners. There have actually been more than one such video. Yeah. Um, And also, if you remember, right, we've all seen videos of, like, Russian prisoners being recorded uh, in order to do, like... You know, make videos that get you know retweeted by the people who like respond to the Kiev Independent, right? Yes. Um, you know, we we have we and which again, that is a violation of the laws of war. This is well, well, this is you, part you of cannot the, do that. This is part of the good propaganda. There's there's propaganda, and then there's propaganda. You know, like this was these terms were sort of set out by uh, by a lot of people at the beginning of the war. You know, which which is that. They essentially said, you know, it is necessary for us to boost uh, these stories and we want we need you to share these stories because you, the citizen like of, you know, like thousands and thousands of miles away from the front are helping. You are helping the just cause. You are helping the right side of the war by sharing this stuff. And no matter the internal contradiction of that basically every side is doing propaganda it just happens to be that the russians are fucking terrible at it (laughs) or like awful at doing propaganda and the ukrainians are very good at it so uh so what she is what heather mcpherson said is thank you mr chair to start with i want to say that i'm deeply appalled by some of the testimony we have heard today and the fact that we have heard there are bad people on both sides we're looking at an illegal war and an invasion of sovereign territory Looking at the ways Russia has gone into Ukraine, despite lying over and over again, has fired on citizens and has very clearly done unspeakable, horrific things. To claim there are bad people on both sides minimizes the pain Ukraine is going through, and I'm appalled by this testimony. Um, but again, like, yeah, that's none of that is lies. Like, yeah, it's an illegal war; it's an invasion of sovereign territory. Russia has done terrible things there. But again, just pretending that pretending that the laws of war only apply to the bad guys. Uh, why have laws of war then? Yeah. Why have them? Yeah, again, it's um, this sort of Marvel Marvel movie approach to uh, 
<laughs> like legislating about a war, like like getting testimony and figuring out how this country, which is deeply involved in the, I mean, let's not forget that like we're we're in this, like we're in this politically, we're in this financially. And, uh, you know, we're in this to the point that uh, our deputy PM, uh, you know, suggested that uh, a certain former president of Ukraine not get jailed by a certain uh, current president of Ukraine before this war started. Like, like we are deeply involved in this. And if and if parliament can't take the testimony of a guy who's like ex-military, you know, if that's too much for them, if that's too left, then we're fucked. Like. There's yeah. there's yeah, yeah. there's no way to expect any kind of coherent response to this beyond just like bizarre jingoism. And the longer this goes on, like, you know, there, there were recently like in the last couple of days, like very big Ukrainian losses in Lysychansk, which was kind of inevitable. People were talking about this for weeks, you know, that that like this is now a, a grinding war of attrition where whoever has the most artillery shells is going to win. And a lot of the best fighters on both sides have been killed and or captured or wounded, you know? So, yeah, and to just, and, and, and then to say, no, we have the story. We have, we have the good, bad Marvel story that we like. And again, most of the challenges to Paul Robinson have been, you are saying that these things have happened, but have you considered that um, it's bad to say that <laughs> I point that have you considered that it's bad to say that have you considered that, that have you considered that uh, I find the idea of a bug that thinks to be offensive yes have you considered that we are li- we are starship troopers and that we are unable to metabolize that this is not simple no. that this is not a simple story as much as it as much again as much as as much as everything that she says is true this is a war that they started that's illegal that they invaded etc cetera, etc cetera. to just imagine that 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 then answer that is the a priori answer to every subsequent question that you have to ask is um you know is dangerously oversimplistic the longer this so, goes um, on the more complex it's going to get too the more tangled and and the and the worse it's going to get you know like any number of things like mm-hmm. russians occupy dpr lpr and then years from now, maybe a couple of years from now to get to a point where they have a provisional government, they feel like, you know, can handle uh, security issues without having massive amounts of Russian troops there. And then they get, you know, uh, there's a counterinsurgency. It's just going to like <laughs> the longer this goes on, the uh, worse and more complex the ripple, ripple effects are going to be down the line. And and having this and so, black and white idea is is just is just dumping gasoline on that fire. Like, and so so basically, one of the other sort of people testifying um, then um, you know again says says much says much the same thing to uh, to, to Professor Robinson uh, basically, which is like um, uh, when injustice is committed and you remain neutral, you've just sided with the oppressor. Which again, like if if you're just asking a question of law uh, is um, is it, it, sort of is is coming down on again the, the fact of oversimplification um, that uh, uh, he said and they say that though through through Mr. Robinson's statement before this committee alleging without any reliable evidence other than the stuff that he said um, and stating that the atrocities are being committed by both sides the he has essentially sided with the oppressor before the what? committee without any reliable evidence I mean he went up there with uh, anyway <laughs> okay how many war crimes how many violations of the laws of war um does it require before you have done them is it one or is it more yeah um and then uh heather mcpherson says i wholeheartedly agree with the other panelist who is criticizing him robinson says may i be allowed a right of a right of reply and mcpherson says no i would like to end my questioning by saying that the ndp stands with the people of ukraine and recognizes the invasion by the russian federation um into ukraine to be elite and the illegal actions being done to the people of ukraine right now i end my testimony at this point great um, the vice chair then says, I've been very generous to my time with the witnesses, and I see that Mr. Robinson did want to say something. Heather McPherson, no, I do not want to hear it. The vice chair, <laughs> if he wishes to do so, I will exercise. Heather McPherson, do not do that with my time. Vice chair continuing, my prerogative as, as chair to give him time so that Heather McPherson, no, you don't have. I challenge the chair. Uh, the vice chair says, okay, the chair has been challenged. Oh my um, God, I believe it is my right to do so, but you have every right to challenge the chair. Um, so we then we will proceed to a recorded vote ruling of the chair overturned uh four nays uh one yay 
Uh, Vice Chair shrugs and says, thank you very much. That concludes the time to the questions. Thank you very much to our witnesses. Um, uh, we will then suspend for a few minutes and reconvene in camera to attend to some committee businesses. Great. Business. So yeah, great, there it is. Great, great Thank work. You. Thanks. Let's not hear from the guy who's saying the thing we might necessarily not want to hear. Yeah. Just shutting it completely down. This is the same person who had uh, the UCC chair on as testimony. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I kind of know the contours of how McPherson got pilled on this, but like, I will say, like, all joking aside, it is kind of dangerous to have this kind to to have these kind of parliamentary sessions when you're dealing with war. Like, (laughs) it's uh, and I'm thinking about like I'm thinking about the 1990s and Canada's. I mean, we'll we'll get into this uh, in our upcoming episode with John Dolan, but like. I always think about uh, Canada's involvement in um, the Balkan War, like one of the first Balkan Wars between the the Serbia, the war between Serbia and Croatia, um, in uh, Krajina, which is uh, southern Croatia, south uh, southeastern Croatia. Canadian military uh, embedded, like as part of a uh, UN group, went in and defended Serbian villagers against. Uh, a Croat strike force, right? And this is at this is at a time where the Serbs are are being sort of spun out as the major villains in the war, which you know obviously they were uh, not. But but every other group in this war was also committing counter massacres, right? Like atrocities. Uh, Croatian army was going into Serbian encampment uh, enclaves in and Krajina and massacring people and putting them in concentration camps. And to the Canadian military's credit, like they did go in and defend Serbian villagers from uh, from a Croat military group, paramilitary group. I can't imagine that happening now in Ukraine. It is unthinkable to me that you know if we had Canadian forces on the ground that they would be you know, sort of working towards the security of whatever sort of uh, village population was under threat by whichever side, you know, whether it was being flattened by Russian artillery or having like uh, some detachment of right sector coming in, clearing, uh, clearing apartments house by house. Like, I can't imagine that. But there was a point in time where we did, you know, uh, I don't know. It's yeah. <laughs> It's it's a difficult thing to uh, you know continue to continue seeing to continue seeing gas poured on this thing, um, and at the same time to continue just to, that everyone who seems to want it to be over, right? Who sort of understands that um, the simple story of an easy victory over a um, the simple story of uncomplicated heroes and villains where an easy victory of the heroes over the villains is inevitable and uh, just around the corner um, is that that belief is the thing that one of the things that keeps it going. Yeah. And that's one of the things that that makes the war aims maximal and that moves uh, us away from the, negoti- from the negotiating table. I, 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 I don't disagree. Right. Much of what what Heather McPherson said that it is an, uh, an, an illegal invasion that more. Uh, that 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 Russia is committing a huge number of uh, of sort of, of of atrocities, like like Bucha happened, you know these kinds of things. Um, that none of that is is wrong, but to say that because all of that is true, we also do not look to our own side seems to me to be part of the um, part of of the simplification machine that is that is working. Yes, and I I would kind of argue that that's partially, not entirely, but partially how we got into this mess in the first place which is you know there were alarm bells after maidan immediately after maidan about um you know uh essentially sending in election observers like listening to people from eastern ukraine listening to uh dissenting journalists in in the capital in kiev in the west you know like uh saying, you know, maybe it's not a good idea that we just keep saying that Ukraine is this bright beacon of functional democracy at the periphery of uh, ex-USSR. Maybe something is deeply wrong here, you know, <laughs> you know? but uh, but you're not going to, you, you know, that was dealt with as heretical um, 
from 2014 right up until the eve of the war. No, it was only, I feel like it was only in the, the, the sort of 2019 through 2020, 2020, where you started seeing uh, people like Radio Free Europe started taking seriously the the sort of fractured nature of Ukraine and and uh, and the fact that maybe having a bunch of uh, paramilitaries wandering around from um, assault to assault and then you know uh, fucking up peace treaties was not a good thing that that maybe we needed to pay attention to it but uh but yeah this sort of blinkered thinking is uh it, it's only gonna create more misery right? It'll end a war if it happens to be right, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's just it's seeing um, sort of our parliamentarians just sort of, you know, decide to um, decide to take a sort of simple uh, moralistic shutdown of a thing that challenged their ideas uh, is uh, all too predictable uh, and, again, um, uh, regrettable yeah. for everyone. Yeah. And it's going to get people hurt. Not Not here, of course, but definitely over there. So... Anyway, I think that's uh, probably about all, about all we have time for today. Uh, so on that cheery note, I think it's time for us to say uh, goodbye. And we will, of course, happily see you later uh, on the next episode next week. That's right. So, I'm going uh, I'm gonna go to the Dep and lick the wine bottles. That's, uh, that's my right. <laughs> it's free, too. I don't have to use right. an app for it. So bye, everybody. Perfect. Bye, everybody. Bye.